is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. Yo, what's up, brother? How's it going, man? How's the volume sounding to you? Oh, it sounds real good. It sounds real good. How about me? <laughs> Mike, hey, hey. <laughs> turn, turn the mic up um no you sound good last week i had a lot of people say that you were way louder than me so i don't know why that was but um, that's racist that's racist <laughs> uh dude so you're uh well i was gonna say good to be back but we were here last week it just felt last week i felt like it was kind of a dud episode uh how did you feel you know what um i felt like we focused a little too much on just going with questions and answers for the entire time. And I think it's a lot more fun if we use Q&A to supplement things that we're interested in talking about for our own reasons. And I think we got away from that a little bit last week, and I'd like to get back into that this week. Well, it just really wasn't true to ourselves, true to our game plan, you know? It's like when a team just isn't what they're supposed to be. Uh, Speaking of, though, dude, we got to take a minute to acknowledge the Cubbies in the world series dude this is legit this is the real deal man i i was around for the uh 2003 you know pennant chase when we had everything from the around you were like 40 then (laughs) right i thought you were gonna say you were around for the 1945 right i was around for the infamous goat game In fact, it was my goat. (laughs) (laughs) Dude, I I never believed the curse was real. But in 2003, it wasn't even Bartman for me. It was the the uh, the Rodriguez drop. I mean, just so many things went wrong in that eighth inning. I actually tried to break the curse by going back and watching that before um, before the uh, before winning the pennant. So anyway, man, I've had my heart broken for many years and it was just amazing to see it. I actually spoke on the phone with several friends from high school that I hadn't talked to in at least 10 years. And there was one person in particular, I'm giving a shout out to Don Mendel, who's the biggest Cub fan in the world, the biggest Cub fan I know. And uh, I even called up Don and I said, I know this means, I know this means more to you than anybody else I know. And uh, I gave her a shout out. Um, There's a friend of mine that, that I grew up with in church. His name is Pedro Boyd, giving a shout out to you too, man. I called him up and we just had some great conversations about the old days of watching Ryan Sandberg, Andre oh, Dawson, Sean I know, Dawson. Dude. I had, I had uh, Ryan Sandberg posters. In fact, I still own probably 40 or 50 Ryan Sandberg baseball cards. <laughs> he was my favorite player. You know, I grew up about two hours from Chicago and I, I went to Wrigley, I don't know, half a dozen times. I mean, it was just, it was life changing. It was, I mean, that was my, the Cubs were absolutely my team. So, but what's even more fun about it for me is that, ever since they've been in the playoffs now just i can't stop doing my harry carey impersonation all the time it's great <laughs> well you got to do it live i did a malcolm gladwell hey hey tk coleman hey you know i heard you drink a lot of red bull you know who played for the chicago bulls michael jordan he also played for the white Sox, the team that nobody goes to see in chicago hey Hey, they got stadium <laughs> hot dogs how many stadium hot dogs could you eat if you were starving I think I could eat probably a, the equivalent of three nautical miles. Hey, Cubs win! Cubs win! That's about that's about it, man. Just it flows. I can't turn it off. 
<laughs> Dude, that's better than uh, Will Ferrell's impersonation. <laughs> well, it's really me impersonating Will Ferrell, impersonating Harry Carey. Because um, Will Ferrell has now become, like, when you hear actual Harry Carey, you're like, eh, he's not as good as the original. You know, Will Ferrell's impersonation has so dominated our psyche. So, um, Man, I, I got to say one more thing about these Cubs is so many people who don't get sports, who aren't into it, they're always saying things like, oh, it's just mere tribalism, blah, 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 blah. But it, it was such a beautiful experience to see the way in which so many people across so many generations, across so many different cultures were brought together in this moment of celebration. And even even all of the angst that people experience over the years, all of the anger and the disappointment, even that was meaningful when you finally won. That is what made it mean so much when, when we finally won. And it was just really cool seeing the way sports can bring people together and make people feel like they're a part of something special. That's something that I've always valued. I know everybody doesn't get that, but I love it. No, I feel like if you've never had a moment where you were given chills or brought to tears because of a moment in sports, then you're missing out on something. There are just those rare moments. Like, I mean, in the Cubs series, you know, the, the first two games of the World Series, Kyle Schwarber, who was out the entire year with a horrendous knee injury, uh, and was rehabbing and was supposed to be the entire year. And then, you know, next year he would come back and it would take him a while to get back into the game and professional baseball hitting a major league pitch is one of the most intense acts of physical and mental focus ever, which is why the guys do all these crazy weird rituals before every at bat, they step out of the batter's box that, you know, they step back in. It's like before every pitch, it's really intense. And to miss a whole season, it's generally understood for one, you're not, you know, he wasn't even supposed to come back this early, but that you're not going to be able to hit a pitch. Like it's kind of stupid to even play the guy. He just literally got cleared to play. Hasn't seen a single pitch since game three or something of the season. And the guy comes in and he was such a star and having this horrendous injury. And he goes like, he went like three for five in the first two games with like three RBIs or something. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just moving. He got choked up, you know, um, one other this year, and I didn't even follow it that closely. I just saw it on SportsCenter. One of those moments, those sports moments that, just moments that I think only an understanding of sports brings, which is really powerful. There's a guy on the the Marlins. Um, I'm forgetting his name right now. Fernandez. And there, a, a young guy, a really well-liked guy, and he died in a boating accident. Um, just totally, suddenly, uh, obviously. And the team, and he was really, you know, um, a big presence in the clubhouse the team had to play the next day. And so it was really emotional. The whole team wore his number and his name on the back of their Jersey. And the guy on the team who was closest to him was a player, uh, um, forgetting his first name. His last name is D, but a really little guy has never hit a, a home run in his whole career. He's not a home run hitter. He's a small guy. So he gets up and he takes his first at bat left-handed because, um, for I think it's Fernandez. The guy, the guy who died was a lefty. And so he takes his first pitch left-handed just as a tribute to him and gets a strike and then on the next pitch, he hits a home run, the only home run of his first career home run. And he's just weeping and the whole team just clears the bullpen or the dugout. Like there's just moments that that are transcendent in a way. And I know that the sportscasters like to dramatize and like to try to make every moment like that. But you can't deny when you follow sports, some of those moments that they just give you a narrative arc. They create metaphors for you that they, they have some meaning to them. That's so much more than just a, you know, empty tribalism. 
You know, uh, since I'm in New York, I got to give a shout out to the 1970s NBA Finals. I was there, ladies and gentlemen. I was there. (laughs) (laughs) Front row seat. When Willis Reed, you know, he he was injured in game seven and and he walks out and you see him walking, walking down the tunnel and Madison Square Garden just goes electric to see him coming out because you knew that his body wasn't giving him permission to do it. But it was a moment of transcendence. It was a moment where he was just choosing to be better than his circumstances, choosing to push himself for some kind of greater cause to do something special for the city, to do something for that moment, you know? Uh, and it just gives you chills to see it. By the way, you know how we have our Facebook Warriors segment. We need to just have some cheesy music playing in the background right now. And then in the voice of the Deep Thoughts guy from SNL, I can say, moments of transcendence. And then and then we can talk about some something this day in sports history. We, sentimental moment. We can call it holy moments. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean really Kobe Bryant's last game, Derek Jeter's last at bat, there are those the best of the moments where you know it's statistically insane and it's not it shouldn't happen and it's improbable. But you know you get excited because deep down you know it's going to happen. There are moments in games where you're like, they're going to make a comeback. Like they, everything on paper would say they won't. But there's some party that just knows it. And it's almost like everyone knows it. And there are times when like the team who's got a you know three possession lead in football, their fans suddenly get nervous because even they know it. They just know somehow something is in the air. You know, there's, oh, I love that. Or when a player gets hot in basketball, you just know, you just know they're going to make the crazy shot because something, there's just something going on. And, and this for me is one of the greatest lessons about life that you can gather from sports. There, there's a, there's a sort of attitude we permit ourselves to have in everyday life that athletes just don't have the luxury of, of, um, of having. And that is we we look at the data alone, we look at the odds alone, and we say, well, it looks like I'm not going to make it, so it's not worth trying. It looks like it's not worth fighting for because the odds are against me. But in sports, you understand that statistics aside, the games must be played and the outcome must be determined not by the data alone, not by what's on paper, but by what happens on the field. And on any given Sunday, on any given game, something magical can happen, something random can happen, some moment of transcendence can occur where the unthinkable happens. I mean, uh, Chuck Grimmett, who I'm staying with here in New York, we were just talking the other night about the upset between Buster Douglas and Mike Tyson many years ago. That was never supposed to happen. Nobody could have predicted that, but it happened. You know, And sports is this constant reminder that it doesn't matter if you're matched up against whatever your version of Serena Williams is in the real world. The outcome must be determined by what you do when you get out there and engage reality. And sometimes we can surprise other people. Sometimes we can surprise ourselves. And that's what makes life interesting. Okay, so this is actually a really great segue for something I wanted to talk about anyway. Yeah. And superstition and placebo effects. So athletes are notorious for being superstitious. And baseball players probably the most of all. Um, and as I mentioned, one of the reasons is I think each pitch, both from the pitcher and the batter standpoint is one of the single most physically and mentally intensive acts in any sport. It's so brief, but it's so intense. You have no chance of getting a hit if you don't have 100% focus mentally and physically and everything doesn't go perfect. And same with the pitcher. So 
before you step into a split second where you have to be all in, you know, like lifting the, the most weight you've ever lifted. Like you have to really mentally get in the zone. So that takes strapping and unstrapping your batting glove 15 times, whatever. But there's a level beyond just sort of habit and routine and ritual. There's a level of like superstition, you know, oh, don't wash those socks because you wore them last time we won, etc. And I don't think that's because athletes are just stupid or they're just bored. And so they make up superstitions I think it's because it works and it doesn't work in the sense that, yeah, if I have these socks on, it's, it's physically going to change my muscles and change the mechanics of my swing or my jump shot. It's not so materialistic as that. Like we're, we're emotional and mental creatures as well. And the way that you feel, because whatever the, the physical reality of, you know, your body can make this particular shot. So it doesn't matter what kind of socks you have. That's not how it goes. You still have to actually perform the act of conscious will of making that shot. Your body doesn't just do it automatically. It requires your will, your consciousness and your confidence, your belief, your, the emotions you bring to the table, how you feel about it, how focused you are impact what you're capable of doing. And if wearing the same socks gives you more security and comfort, even if it's irrational, if it makes you perform better, What's wrong with that? We talk about this with placebos. Oh, it turns out it was just a placebo. Like it's a gotcha moment. Why is it a gotcha moment? If taking a pill that has nothing but sugar in it makes me feel less depressed, why would I not keep doing that? What's, what's bad about that? If it's, it's, it's me understanding that, you know, I can improve my condition, even if there's no, I can't explain physically why it happens. It happens. Why is that a bad thing? This reminds me of the um, recent retesting of smiling experiments. So, you know, common sense wisdom says when you smile, it makes you feel better. It's a great way to improve your mood. And lots of people report this to be consistent with their personal experience. And this has supposedly been uh, a very well substantiated, accepted, you know, fact in the psychological community. But as is custom, every 20, 30, 40 years or so, they redo a lot of these experiments in, in light of modern technology and improved methods. And so they redid, they redid the experiments and they came to the conclusion that this isn't as supported by the evidence as they had previously thought. That the jury is still out on this notion that, that there's a scientific reason for believing that smiling can make you feel better. And even though lots of people say it works for them. The conclusion is it may just be a placebo. It may just be the case that smiling makes people happier because they expect it to do so. They think that it's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> and what's weird to me is I, I appreciate, you know, from the research point of view, the importance of being able to say, ha, gotcha. You're only happy because <laughs> you think you're happy. <laughs> right, right. But I, it's almost like by, by saying well, that's a placebo effect. We don't have to ask any more questions. We've explained it. We don't have to be impressed anymore. And what's odd to me is that we don't go in the opposite direction. We don't go in the direction of saying, wait a minute. If you have the power to make yourself happy simply by expecting things to work out for you, how can we use that to our advantage? How can we more directly manipulate our subjective states? It reminds me of a recent episode of the X-Files where you have the character Mulder who tends to lean towards paranormal explanations, whereas Scully tends to lean towards uh, 
scientific explanations. The two of them are partners. They're investigating these crimes that defy conventional explanations. So thus the X-Files. These are crimes that have been categorized in the X-Files. And in one recent episode, this guy, he keeps claiming that aliens have been abducting him. And he's not just making a claim. He has all sorts of physical wear and tear on his body. And after doing some research, they conclude that there is no known or conceivable explanation for how this could happen to this guy. And it looks like his story is checking out that something crazy and out of the ordinary is happening. And so the more scientific minded scholar decides it must be placebo. He must be producing these sores on his body and these anatomically impossible, you know, things that are happening with him. It must be the result of placebo. He thinks aliens are abducting him. And because he believes it so strongly, he's manifesting symptoms that would be consistent with alien abduction. And that's just put out there as, oh, yeah. So now that we've explained it, we can just move on with our lives. And I'm watching this and I'm screaming at the TV thinking, no, 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 no. If that's true, even if that is the scientific explanation, shouldn't we be conducting research in placebos to figure out how we can do that more? to produce desired results? Doesn't that mean that our mind is the alien? Our mind is the angel? Our mind is this magical thing that we were looking for in yeah, the outside the, the world? The implications for the power of our own minds are so vast. I, I've thought this with drug studies where you'll see, you know, oh, this drug claimed to have a 10% improvement in, you know, whatever outcome, but the placebo effect also had a 10% improvement. And the conclusion is always, therefore, this drug deserves no further attention. It doesn't work. And my conclusion is always, holy crap, let's look into this placebo because that's a lot cheaper. Let's just start giving the placebo to people if they're going to get a 10% improvement, you know? Like, wh <laughs> why is that never the conclusion? You know, so this ties into, um, and we touched on this a little bit in a previous episode, but I think there's more there. Occam's razor, which is always invoked. And I know this is a, I know like the actual Occam's razor is a little bit more subtle and complex and it's, it's something to the effect of, you know, a, a, a theory with the smaller, a smaller number of new propositions necessary for it to be true is more likely to be true than one that requires a greater number of additional assumptions or whatever, something to that effect. But most people define it as, you know, the simplest explanation is most likely to be true. And I think, completely accepting Occam's razor, you you start to realize if you zoom out and remove yourself from the narrative and the, the status quo baggage that we tend to bring with us, and you just look at situations and ask what's the simplest, what people call simplest is very often not the simplest. They, they, they conflate a simple explanation with an official explanation or an explanation given by someone in authority. So I was just listening to the foreword to a book that I was going to read, but I don't know if I will. It didn't fully captivate me, but it was called um, Voodoo Histories, the role of conspiracy theories in shaping historical and political events. And it's about conspiracy theories, uh, the theorists themselves and their beliefs. And this guy is basically operating from the assumption that all of these conspiracy theories are untrue, but that nonetheless, because people believe they're true, it has an impact on the world, mostly for the worse, because these are irrational and bad ideas and it creates paranoia and all these bad things. 
At least that's what I, what I picked up so far. I only listened to a little bit. But one thing he said I thought was so funny. He was talking about how his modus operandi is Occam's razor. And these conspiracy theorists always have these grand, complex explanations for things that have simpler explanations. And he just briefly touched on the JFK assassination. And he said, you know, this is an example where these there's all these conspiracy theories, but I, I go with Occam's razor, you know. And it, he basically said the official story is true. Now, I stopped for a minute. I don't know a ton about the JFK assassination. It's never been that intriguing of a conspiracy theory to me. But I know a little bit about it. And I thought the one thing I do know about it is the official explanation is probably the least simple explanation compared to all the conspiracy theories. The official explanation is kind of crazy. It's kind of highly implausible. It requires a lot of things that don't really make a lot of sense. This guy who's just really angry, this lone gunman, shoots the president, and then for some reason, a random nightclub owner named Jack Ruby runs up in public and shoots the assassin before anyone gets a chance to hear him on trial. He had already been captured by police. He was going to have his day in court, and he was going to come to justice, And this guy was so enraged, this private citizen, he was so passionate about John F. Kennedy that he wanted to give himself a life sentence to prison just to kill the guy before the justice system did it for him. And he was in Texas where they had a where they had a death penalty. Like if the guy was guilty, he was going to get killed anyway by the justice system. Like the implausibility of that, that is not a simple explanation. That requires a lot of leaps and a lot of things that are really unusual and bizarre compared to many of the conspiracy theories which are as simple as, you know, there was more going on and more people involved, therefore they had to kill, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald before he could talk. That's much simpler. But it's so easy to conflate Occam's razor with the simplest explanation to conflate that with the official explanation, the explanation handed down by authority, and to just automatically characterize any other explanation as more, as unnecessarily complex, when it's actually not about complexity. Oh, yeah, and a a, a lot of our concept of what simplicity is, is is affected by status quo bias. So when you look at the conspiracy theory examples for for a minute, you find that there are always two aspects with these conspiracy theories. The first aspect is there's some kind of hole in the official story. That's why conspiracy theories exist. They, they are formed out of a reaction to discrepancies that exist in what we're told. When we're not given the full story, when we're not given great answers, when there isn't a lot of transparency, people start to come up with their own answers. You see this a lot in the 9-11 truth movement, for instance. The 9-11 truth movement was born out of the fact that when 9-11 happened, the official story was one that you know, the establishment seemed to be very protective of, they seemed to be nervous about answering certain kinds of questions, they seemed to be unnecessarily defensive about certain things, and that that in and of itself is not an endorsement of any alternative explanations for 9-11, but when you look at the lack of transparency that characterized the way this situation was dealt with, it at least makes sense as to why people would try to come up with their own answers. But then once people try to come up with their own answers, they're usually so immersed in a realm of speculation that even if they come up with something that's true, it's almost impossible to substantiate. And people just tend to focus on that. People just tend to focus on the fact that conspiracy theories are really difficult, if not impossible, to prove. Therefore, the simplest thing for me to do so that I can move on with my life is to just blindly accept every aspect of the official story as true. And many people invoke Occam's razor to justify that, and that's not what Occam's razor is at all. In fact, simplicity is often relative, 
And it's often debatable. What you find to be simple might not be simple to me. I mean, take the notion that authority figures lie or the idea that politicians lie. For me, this is a very simple thing. I have no difficulty whatsoever imagining a politician lying, not because I think they are uh, comic bookish type characters, but just from a rational choice theory perspective, it makes sense as to why people would find themselves in situations where they are highly incentivized to lie and where they see themselves as being justified in doing so. But I have had many conversations with many people who find that to be a very complex idea. They have an extremely difficult time imagining uh, a presidential candidate or a police officer or a judge in a courtroom telling a lie or suppressing evidence or making up uh, something that's not true. So what gets to be simple depends on the prior presuppositions we carry into that discussion. So it's it's not as self-evident as people like to make it out to be. You know, ownership of the word simple as sort of, you know, oh, if you get to be the one that says, well, this explanation is simple and this one's not, you automatically sort of have the the higher ground in a debate. And I think similarly, and again, the subtle conflation of simple with official authority approved um, is very subtle. And I think another word that, that has that happen is the word radical. And if you think mm. of radical, if you just want to give it like a dictionary definition, most people would probably think something that's well outside of common sense or conventional wisdom or something that when you first hear it, it sounds like a bad idea or it sounds crazy or it sounds like you are going to demand additional arguments to prove to you why this idea or action should be undertaken. Whereas something that's not radical, the minute I say to you, hey, you should probably eat lunch today. There's nothing about that that makes you be like, whoa, 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 whoa. You better have a good argument for that, right? It's 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 doesn't require a lot. Like that's how I would sort of think of it. But when you see the way that the word is employed in practice, it's actually just the opposite very often. That radical simply has come to mean anything that's different from the status quo, even when the status quo is like is crazy, is what I would call radical. Uh, anything that's different from what authorities and established institutions um, or official, you know, sort of government stamped bureaucrats or experts would say. Um, and I was just reminded of this because our buddy Tim Shermack, who's been on the podcast before, he just posted something like, oh, man, why Chipotle is better than government? You know, I'm at Chipotle and I'm like, I want guacamole. And they say, oh, hold up. You know that that costs extra, right? And he says, yes, I want it anyway. He says, whereas government, not only am I not going to them and saying, I want to buy this service, they're coming to me and saying, you have to have guacamole here and they don't have the courtesy of saying, and it's going to cost you this much, it's going to cost you extra, and I don't have the option to say, no thanks, I don't want it. And I thought about, you know, someone who evades taxes or protests their taxes or says, I refuse to pay for religious reasons or whatever else, what are they going to be called in the media? They're going to be called a radical. But if I said to you, what seems more radical, TK? Me saying, hey, here are these various services. Do you want to purchase them? Here's what they cost. And you saying yes or no, or me saying, hey, I am going to uh, drop some bombs on some children you've never met, and I am going to charge you for it, and I'm not going to tell you exactly how much it costs. And you say, well, actually, I don't want you to do that with my money. That's not a service that I want. And I say, you're going to pay me or you're going to go to jail. Stop being ungrateful, you radical. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> yeah, the yeah. radical idea is the idea that 
it should be normal to be forced to have your money taken from you to do things that you don't even know about, to spy on you sometimes, to kill people in other parts of the world and whatever. And again, not like this is the only thing government's doing. Yes, roads are being paved and all this other stuff, but nobody really knows. Like that's kind of a radical idea for a way society should be structured to me compared to knowingly purchasing services. But if you get to own that word radical and just define it as anyone who doesn't go along with authority, it's really easy. I mean, people say that about praxis, like this is such a radical idea. And I call it radically practical. It's only radical because of, of where culture is, but it's the most practical thing in the world. If, if you said to me, and I'll stop here, I know I'm going on, but if you said to me, hey, I want to learn how to work. And I said, here are two options. One, you go find someone who's good at working and you work for free and learn how to work by working for them. You'd say, okay, that's interesting. And then if I said, here's another one, you pay someone to prevent you from working for four years. And at the end of that, you hope that you know how to work. You'd say, well, that sounds radical. How are you going to prove to me that I'm going to somehow know how to work by paying a ton of money to be prevented from working? I don't get it. You're going to have to give me more explanation. That's radical to me, but the latter is college. And the former is like an apprenticeship or praxis or work for free, which when we propose that kind of stuff, hey, you don't need to sit in classrooms for four years. Go out there and work for somebody. If if you don't have any skill for them to pay you, offer to do it for free. People are like, work for free, that's radical. And I'm like, no, right now what you're doing is radical. You're paying someone who's never worked in their life to prevent you from working for four years and hoping that it magically leads to you knowing how to work, you know? So I think that conflation of what's radical is is also important. Okay, so this, this is super interesting, especially with you bringing Praxis up because I speak with several dozen parents a month who, or, or every other month, who are interested in their children doing Praxis or who are perhaps just curious because their child is interested in doing Praxis. And what's interesting to me is that there are some very common questions which in and of themselves are totally legitimate and perfectly innocent, but it's almost shocking to see how they only come up within the context of doing something that is an alternative to the norm. So, for example, one common concern is the moral implications of a child going away from home and possibly taking on a new lifestyle. So for instance, you have a young man that's interested in going to college. The parents were okay with that. He hears about our program and decides Praxis is a better fit for him and he wants to do it. Then I find myself on the phone with the parent who's expressing concerns about things like, so my son's going to be moving to a different state and I don't want him getting caught up with a bunch of partying and alcohol and drinking and stuff. So what can the program do to make sure that if he moves to Chicago or New York, that he doesn't just spend all his time at parties and drinking alcohol and so forth. Now, in every case, I accept the question as legitimate and I answer it sincerely. I don't despise the question at all. But what's amazing to me is the way in which status quo bias totally precludes us from being worried about this when it comes to sending that same son to college. Because if you send your son to college, there is an extremely high probability that he will be spending a substantial amount of time <laughs> at a party, getting drunk. And, and, you know. what, and what is an admissions officer or a professor like? Have you asked them? Now, what are you going to do to ensure, you know, and do you actually believe it? But, it, but it's not... It's so funny. I mean, I was just talking to Heather about this same thing because I was actually talking about how 
how much, uh, how good you are talking with parents and just understanding their concerns, where they're coming from. You're much more patient than I am. And just how it's, it's so like, we want those questions. We welcome those questions. We don't want anyone to be our customer who is not 100% enthused about it and excited about it. And the people that are supporting them and that are part of their life, you know, we don't want them to be in the program and constantly wondering and second guessing. Never. We never want that to happen. So we love these, these conversations. It's a good way for us to find out if you're a good fit. But she was like, well, what kind of questions and objections do people have? And I said, they're all usually like good and reasonable ones that they should have, but it just cracks me up that they, they don't ask. They'll be like, okay, yes. So you're going to get them a job and uh, they're going to learn a bunch of stuff professionally. I I love that. And I get that. That's great. Cause you know, college can't promise me that, but my kid is young. They're, they're emotionally immature you know, are, are they going to be able to move to a new setting with it, with a, and have to create a new social life? Are they going to be able to handle it emotionally, psychologically? And, you know, that's a big part of what we do in the coaching and everything, but it's, it's always, and I, I don't usually do this, but occasionally I have, I've said, um, yeah, here's what we'll do. Let me ask you, what, what do you think college is going to do? What makes you feel better about that? And they often have this moment where they're like, oh, I guess I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> you know, it's, it is a very strange thing. Status quo. I mean, it's hard for all of us. It's hard for all of us to not. And this is where I think entrepreneurship begins. It is a fundamental discontentment. It begins with a refusal to accept, to, to leave well enough to, alone, to accept that this is the way we do things and it works pretty well to accept and to be excited and happy about the fact that we get, you know, Wi-Fi and airplanes now. No, that's not enough. Why does it take so long? Why isn't it faster? Why isn't it to, to have this discontentment and to not just say the status quo is handling things pretty well. Um, but to always be saying it could always be better. Um, and, and that's, that's, that combination is where entrepreneurship begins. I call it, I call it discontent optimism. Cause if you're just an optimist, you're just sort of like, everything's going to be better just magically somehow. But if you're discon- if you're only discontent, you're just like everything sucks and I'm unhappy. But if you're a discontent optimist, you say nothing is good enough. I'm always unhappy about something. There's always something that could be better. I should never have to deal with someone calling my cell phone uh, to talk to me about a cable TV package. That ticks me off. The world should not be that way. And I'm so excited that there's an opportunity to make it better. And I'm so optimistic to see that there's a possibility of improving it. I think that combo is really powerful. I have actually started using the term entrepreneurial optimism. I, I haven't updated my website to reflect this. I've been going by tough-minded optimism for, for many years now, but I like the term entrepreneurial optimism because it captures... I don't exa- know, dude. Entrepreneurial has gotten so... <laughs> I call jack- it the, the discontent optimists, and then you can be like, idea inspired by Isaac Morehouse because it was better than my original idea. It, it was like an asterisk under it. This would be the perfect moment for me to just lose all my enthusiasm and be like, yeah, okay, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's cool, man. Whatever, whatever you want like, it to be. You're like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get, get this new creative project up. And I'm like, no, nah, I don't like the name. You should change it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, check it out. I, I shared something on Facebook uh, last week that I think you like. It's a, a Douglas Adams quote where he's talking about technology and the status quo. And he says this. I've come up with a set of rules that describe our reactions to technology. Oh, I've heard this. I've heard this. No, this is great. Read it. <laughs> yeah. Number one, anything that is in the world when you're born is normal and ordinary and is just a natural part of the way the world works. Number two, anything that's invented between when you're 15 and 35 
is new and exciting and revolutionary, and you can probably get a career in it. Number three, anything invented after you're 35 is against the natural order of things. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's so good. Douglas Adams, if you have never read The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, you are doing yourself a tremendous disfavor. It is one of the cleverest, most delightful books I've ever read. But, you know, one thing I like about that quote, man, that goes along with what you just said about discontentment is that we don't need to be as positive or as creative as we often think. We just need to be less selective in our skepticism. A lot of people come to me and they say, TK, how can I be more positive? How can I be more positive? And my answer to that is always, you don't need to be more positive. You just need to be as skeptical about the negative things as you are about the positive things. We're naturally hardwired to be skeptical. We're naturally hardwired to question things. We just tend to only use that part of ourselves in relation to a small set of possibilities. So if I were to walk up to the average person on the street and say, hey man, today's gonna be a really awesome day. Something good is gonna happen to you. That person would immediately kick in with the skepticism and say, well, why do you say that? What's your basis for that? I mean, you don't even know me. Why would you tell me something good's gonna happen to me? No one would accept the notion that they're gonna win the lottery or something amazing is gonna happen or their life is gonna improve without mountains and mountains of evidence. And yet we do the very same thing when it comes to impossibility, when it comes to negative news. You can go up to the average person and say, ooh, something bad is gonna happen to you. And that person won't even sleep for a week. We're so superstitious when it comes to impossibility. Like, it is so easy to frighten people. You don't have to know anyone. Just walk up to them, look at them with a spooky face and say, I had a dream and you were the lady in my dream and something bad happened to you, lady. I guarantee you, average person won't be able to sleep for a week. But if we can just apply a little select, a a little skepticism to status quo or conventional notions about what is, what is impossible or how it must be or what reality is, we won't need to be as creative and as positive as we think we need to be. We'll just question reality as it is natural for us to do. And we'll constantly be creating many revolutions in everyday life. Yeah. The, the complete and total belief in the absence of evidence in bad news and negative global trends is always astounding oh my to me. I mean, if you ask people their thoughts on crime rates, nine out of 10 people are going to be like, crime's getting worse, where all the data shows the opposite. If there's a report on the news about, you know, uh, a surge in shark attacks or the thinning of the rainforest or, you know, manufacturing jobs are leaving America, which I don't even know if that would be a bad thing uh, overall. But anyway, the, the lack of skepticism, almost nobody would be like, oh, please, that is, that is ridiculous. Let's actually look at the data. Oh, okay. They mean this quarter, there are fewer jobs, even though in the last 10 years, manufacturing has gone up. Yeah. That's what I figured, you know, like to, to approach it with a default skepticism that's that people do to like really good news. You know, scientists are about to discover this, or we're going to be in the, on the moon and, you know, with a colony in 10 years or whatever, people are like, meh, Show me when it's actually there. I'm skeptical. But when it's like, you know, the world is getting worse. Resources are running out. It's like, yep, yep, totally. Buy it. (laughs) (laughs) And think think about how vague, how vague and imprecise that is, right? The world is getting worse. Resources are running out. What the heck does that mean? We're running out of resources. (laughs) (laughs) Right. What resources specifically are running out? And and at what rate? And in what sense? But we don't require any kind of precision, any kind of evidence. We just say, "Mm mm-hmm, yep, that's why we got to get... Trump slash Hillary. Well, 
there's a fundamental, I think it comes from a fundamental worldview. I mean, probably a, a lot of them, but the resources one in particular, I've always found to be funny. Cause if you ask people in their personal lives, how many resources do you have access to today versus a year ago or 10 years ago? Just about everybody has access to more resources now than they did before, whether that's their own personal possessions, um, possessions of their friends, even just natural resources, ability to go to the beach, the water, the running water in their house, whatever you want to frame it. Pretty much everybody's personal experience is more abundance in, in at least in the, in the developed world. Um, but I think one of the reasons they're so quick to assume that somewhere out there on a macro scale in the globe in general, resources are being depleted is because they have this fundamental man is bad for the universe, like self-hating worldview. Well, I'm getting more resources. Therefore, there must be fewer somewhere else. This zero sum idea that like it's almost a guilt over the fact that their personal experience life is actually getting better and they have access to more resources. So therefore some, there's gotta be a loser on the other end somewhere and they feel kind of bad about that. And so they just manifest it by pretending to be worried about this, you know? Oh yeah, I, I totally agree. I think another thing too, is we, we don't quite understand how our brains work. We've all been perhaps taught this, but we don't maintain a consciousness of it in everyday life. And that is our brain is hardwired to detect the anomalies and negativity is an anomaly. You know, um, how many times are you going to see a news story about a guy who went to work and came home and spent some time playing with his children? You're not going to hear a story like that because it happens so often that it's not interesting. It's not an anomaly. We're not hardwired to zoom in on that or get excited about that. But it's the guy who comes home and gets drunk and, you know, does something violent and sends everyone out of the house screaming that he's going to do something harmful to him. That's what makes the news story because relative to what happens in everyday life, this is extremely rare. Again, relatively speaking, I get the philosophy that one time is already too much, but relatively speaking, these sorts of things are exceptionally rare. That's precisely why they are news. And once you understand that our brains are hardwired to, to think in this way, you can sort of try to compensate for that. I mean, just because it's natural for you to to do things in a certain way or just because it's instinctive doesn't mean you should just go with the flow of that without any uh, exercise of restraint or critical thought. I believe it was uh, Derek Severos who said, only dead fish go with the flow. You know, I mean, <laughs> when, when my alarm goes off at 6.30 in the morning, my body all the time says, nope, let's hit the snooze button an infinite number of times. Now, just because that's my instinct, does that mean I should go with the flow? Does that mean I should never exercise self-restraint? The obvious answer to that question is, is no. I mean, every time I want to exercise, my body says, no, no, let's not do that exercise stuff. I'm going to die. Does that mean I shouldn't exercise self-restraint or creativity? The answer is absolutely no. And in a similar way, we have to exercise that same level of restraint and creativity when it comes to our brain's natural tendency to only notice when we're in danger or when things look bad because our brains can deceive us in this way and give us a very inaccurate uh, perception of reality. It's far more likely that we're too pessimistic than too optimistic on average. You know, I know that a lot of people will assume, you know, someone like you, especially that you're just naturally an optimist and you just see the glass half full. And, and maybe there's a little bit to that, but I know that you have, and as I, as have I deliberately worked to reprogram 
your brain to see the world in a different way. You know, as you mentioned the story about, you know, every, every good dad that comes home, not no story. Somebody does something bad story. You know, every uh, company could hire a new employee every day for a year. No story. They go out of business and a hundred people lose their job story, even though, you know, um, what Bastiat said that the good economist looks not just at what's seen, but also what's unseen. You know, I, I remember seeing these studies in Michigan where they would say, um, you know, this government agency created 3000 jobs in Michigan this year. But then if you just look at the overall numbers every year in Michigan, like 500,000 jobs were created and 500,000 jobs were destroyed. Like, like there's just a dynamic churn. If you just look at those scene moments, whether it's ribbon cutting ceremonies uh, on the plus side or negative news stories about companies going out of business or horrible things happening on the bad side, and you don't look at the unseen, what's the bigger picture you miss and 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 it's not about just factually like let's go get the facts to have an accurate picture that works on those one-off situations but what you actually need is a completely new paradigm a completely different lens it's like that moment in the matrix when neo finally sees it mm -hmm. and he's in the matrix and he sees everything as numbers and he doesn't need to practice anymore he doesn't need to try really hard because he just gets it oh I can manipulate everything. I find, I get it. And when you finally see the unseen and you see the dynamism of the world around you and you see, oh my gosh, everywhere I look, I see good news. I go to Starbucks and I don't just see people waiting in line to get coffee, looking at their phones. I see strangers who've never met each other thanking each other and making each other's day better with goods that came from half halfway around the world within minutes by other people who've never met. Like all of a sudden the, the, the scales fall off and you start to see and you don't stop seeing the negative, but you see how small it is in this dynamic context. Okay, so all that setup. Mm -hmm. What have you actually done to bring yourself into that mindset? What kind of techniques and things have helped you reprogram yourself so that you don't just go with the scene, that you learn to see the unseen, that you learn to see the matrix as Neo did? Yeah, you know, I have dedicated a tremendous amount of time and energy, and I continue to do so today, to becoming aware of my self-defeating beliefs and finding ways to transcend them or dissolve them. So for me, I didn't come out of the womb being some happy-go-lucky guy who believed that you know the odds were in his favor. Even though I've had, even though life has been very good to me and a lot it, of it would have been hard for you to maintain that belief given your older brothers always beating you in basketball. <laughs> <and> Friday. <laughs> Shout out to Gerald and <laughs> Sean. Dude, I literally thought I was gonna become the next Michael Jordan. I mean, when when I got cut from my high school basketball team, <laughs> this is it. This yeah, is I was it. Like, the story's the same. Right. I was like, it's identical. I have a bald head. <laughs> I got cut from my high school team. I'm doing this, man. So, you took all those lessons about like I failed over and over and that's why I succeed. You took them the complete wrong way. You just started right. checking off all your failures and be like, it's destiny. Dude, I, I never got to the success part. <laughs> That's why we're going to make that commercial about you at the end of your life, like the famous Jordan commercial. And it's just going to be like, I failed over and over again. <laughs> and it's just the end. <laughs> and that is why I succeeded at something else. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Sorry. You were not born optimistic. Go ahead. Yeah. And so I'm not going to sit here and, and try to compete with, you know, Dr. Dre and Eminem and say, Hey, I had a harder life than you guys because I don't believe in there's anything you can gain by getting involved in those competitions. Life has been uh, very good for me in a lot of ways, but 
I have I have had self-defeating thoughts for most of my life. I have always erred on the side of believing things to be impossible, believing that I could not create, that I I could not take charge of my life. And in fact, I believe that most societal problems, most structural problems stem from self-defeating beliefs in the individual. And it's kind of funny because I have a lot of my analytic philosophical friends ask me questions like, TK, don't you think it's just better to teach people how to be rational and think critically as opposed to try to say things to make them feel good? And what's funny to me about that is why in the world would you think it anything other than rational to try to liberate people from self-defeating beliefs using logic and practical techniques? I mean, for instance, if you wake up in the morning and you think to yourself, I'm a total loser, life never works out for me, I can't do anything to change any aspects of my life. No matter what I do, it's a waste of time. Do you think that's logical? Do you think there's a true dichotomy between teaching people to be more logical and teaching them to see just how unsupported a belief like that is? It's not just about making people feel good or trying to empower them. It's about helping them see the truth. And the truth will empower you. The truth will make you free even if it ticks you off at first, even if it doesn't make you feel good. Okay, but let me get to your your question because I'm, I'm going on a little rant here about uh, about the importance of thinking critically about your- I'm waving my hanky, dude, preach. <laughs> I mean, hey man, you look, at, you look at all of the different things we do to try to control others. So for instance, think about how many problems are rooted in the fact that we need to control what other people do in order to have a free world, in order to, to be safe, in order to enjoy our lives, that we have to have all of these different laws mandating that people do this and people don't do that. Where does that come from? That's all rooted in self-defeating beliefs that individuals have about themselves. The reality is people don't believe in their possibilities. People don't believe in their creative power. They do not take themselves seriously as creative forces. And they genuinely believe deep down inside when the rubber meets the road that the only way or the only realistic way for them to get what they want is to force somebody else to give it to them. And we do a lot of work trying to show people how they are wrong about coercion but we do very little work to show people how they're wrong about their own capacity for creativity. And as long as people don't believe in their creativity or as long as people subscribe to logical fallacies about what they're capable of doing, then they will continue to see the coercive path as a necessary evil. And it won't matter what kind of arguments we give them. But anyway, man, l let me get into some of the things I do. So I tend to take a psychonautic approach to personal development. And the term psycho psychonautic. Oh, go ahead. You were about to define it. Yeah, yeah. So I, I like to contrast it with the term astronaut, right? We know astro, the study of astronomy. We know uh, the study of the heavenly bodies and stars and so forth. An astronaut is someone that explores outer space, right? Well, a psychonaut is someone that explores inner space. They take an experimental, non-dogmatic approach to investigating their psychological landscape in order to become more familiar with their mental habits, their thought processes, their subjective experiences, and so forth. So I'm constantly looking for conceptual tools, psychological experiments, and various kinds of practices and techniques that I can use to tinker with my own thoughts and play around with ways to induce paradigm shifts, induce epiphanies, rearrange my mental furniture, and so forth. And so I've developed over the years a pretty vast vocabulary of things you can do to 
alter the way you process and perceive and react and respond to experience. So one is, example is one of them, um, like Bob Wiley from what about Bob, where you wake up and all day you just keep saying, I feel good. I feel great. I feel wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that, that's how I imagine you. Yeah. I'm like Stuart Smalley. Uh, and there was a Michael Jordan episode, by the way, where he makes Jordan do this. You know, you look in the mirror and you say, I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. Now, <laughs> you know what's funny about that? Even though we all make fun of that, and I, I hope for the most part that we all agree this is a pretty ineffective way to go about changing your mental state, it happens to be the number one way that people attempt to cope with self-defeating thoughts. We just do it unwittingly. We just do it unconsciously. So, for instance, think of all the times when someone is afraid or someone feels disempowered and they try to talk themselves out of it. They, they say things like, don't think like that, don't think like that, don't do it, don't do it. Think of how many times you've been mad and a friend says, oh, don't be upset, don't be upset. We're just attempting to use affirmations, although the language might be a little bit more negatively framed, to combat an undesirable thought. It's sort of like in the movie Coraline where there's a scene where the young girl Coraline begins to see these monsters in her bedroom and so she curls up on her bed and she closes her eyes and she says, go to sleep, go to sleep, go to sleep. She's trying to push the bad thoughts away. Most of what we do to try to cope is reducible to some version of trying to push the bad thoughts away and this turns out to be quite ineffective so even though we all make fun of it we all actually do it and it's one of the main reasons why we continue to perpetuate problems but there are other ways of dealing with these things so i'll give you one example um and 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 this example comes from a combination hey, hey real quick hold yeah, that example because yeah. i do want you to give it yeah i actually thinking about it i'm gonna be a little little bit of a devil's advocate or as you call it angel's advocate which oh, is just please. an unnecessarily cheesy turn of phrase but <laughs> Uh, on this, um, may, maybe the direct affirmations actually work better than we think sometimes, is as cheesy as they are. Like, so I have noticed with my kids oftentimes, especially um, my middle daughter, just for whatever reason, her personality and stuff. And as they get older, it's less. But when they, they're in that phase where they're still really little kids, but they kind of can do older kids stuff and they're, they act different, they, where they're like not taking a nap anymore, for example. But they still, when they start to get tired or if they haven't had a lot of food and their blood sugar is low, they become really emotional. Their emotions are dramatically heightened. And I think that's true of all of us. You just see it more with kids who have less ability to sort of control and filter those things. Um, there are times where one of my kids, my daughter, for example, will get so emotional and worked up and all these little things will just start to compound and she'll just start to cry about everything. And it gets, it gets this huge thing where you can tell she feels like she is facing this epic dragon defeating her in like mm -hmm. every way. And I've actually just seen it started with, she got up a little too early, didn't, you know, didn't sleep very much, skipped lunch. And then her Kindle stopped working and then a few more little things. And all of a sudden she couldn't even tell what was wrong anymore. She was just so overwhelmed with emotion and something, usually the most effective thing is to just hold her and to just say, everything's really okay. Everything's actually okay. I know it's just crazy. You're feeling really, really sad. I understand, but everything is really okay. And that actually is the best thing in the world for her. Cause she has a hard time when it gets to that level 
she's she's lost touch with what was the actual fundamental root cause. What's actually going on right now? I don't know. The world's falling apart. Everything's a disaster. And just telling her, it's like that little bit of perspective. Everything's actually okay. And it, there's a fine line between doing that in a way that's patronizing that sounds like, your feelings don't matter. Oh, you're just in a mood. Oh, you're just hungry. You know, you're not really upset. You just didn't eat lunch. Like I know there's a very fine line and the latter is not a good technique, especially with your wife. <laughs> but, but there's something in the former of just like, there's something, I don't know what it is, that subtle difference, but I, I that's actually can, can be really powerful sometimes. Oh yeah. So I, I, I think I know what the subtle difference is. So first of all, if you go out and you buy a book on affirmations or you just look up affirmations online and maybe print out a sheet of them, you'll find that in most cases an affirmation is a statement expressing something that you should believe or some kind of ideal belief and you say them with the hope of kind of changing the way you think or replacing old negative thoughts with new positive, more liberating thoughts. An affirmation is different from new information. An affirmation is just kind of taking something that you ought to think and trying to replace it. New information is when you literally alter the way people perceive reality by giving them knowledge that they didn't previously have. This is usually what results in change. Whenever we change, it's because we've experienced some kind of shift in how we understand things. We experience a change in our understanding of how things work. Now, there's a reason why you said this doesn't work on your wife, but it did work on your little daughter. Here's why. Well, your little daughter is very young. There's a lot about the world that she doesn't know, including some very simple things. So when she's stressed out and her dad picks her up and holds her in his arms and he says everything is going to be okay, number one, there's a high probability that she's hearing this statement for the first time in her life. Number two, you're signaling a lot more to her than just words. By picking her up and displaying your physical strength, holding her and displaying your love and compassion for her, she's getting a message from you that not only says everything is going to be okay because of words, she's getting a message that says, I got you. I got you. Daddy's here. I'm here for you. And part of the reason why she's confident that everything is going to be okay is because you're there and you're present and she has confident confidence in your ability to protect you know, her. When I pick up my wife and show my strength and say, daddy's here, it usually doesn't go very well. Your, your, your wife is smart enough to know that, that you putting your arms around her does nothing for her problems, right? <laughs> but when you, when you consider the size of your daughter's problems and the elementary knowledge she has about them, she has a very good reason to believe that something in her reality has changed by virtue of you picking her up and calmly telling her everything's going to be okay. And the fact that you are not afraid, that's giving her a ton of new information to work with. Yeah, that, and, bit, about, that bit about new information, that, that really opened it up to me when you said that. I think that's right. Because when a kid says, oh my gosh, you know, whatever, I'm, I'm, my leg is tingling. What, am I dying? <laughs> Do I have, what's happening? And you're like, oh, your leg just fell asleep. That's normal. Oh, that's normal? Okay, whew, I feel better. Because you, you gave them a new information. Like, my world feels like it's falling apart. Is it? And you say, no, everything's actually okay. You just, you, your blood sugar's low, you know? Oh, okay. Whereas, uh, you know, my wife, that's not new information to her. It's not new information for me to say, well, you didn't sleep very well last night. That's probably the only reason that you're angry right now. You know, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it feels patronizing because it feels like I'm assuming she's a child and that that would be new information to her. That's a good point. The new information component. So that's, that's the difference between a, an empty affirmation and one that maybe has some power. Yeah. Most forms of affirmation are to use a metaphor. It's like, 
you have a pile of dung on your floor and you take a can of air freshener and you spray it over the dung. Man, it's still dung. You may have covered it in something pleasant, but it's still dung and, and it's going to reek anyway. And, and that's what most forms of positive thinking amount to. We're just covering dung, you know, uh, with something that's positive and it doesn't so- work. So before I got sidetracked on the defending the basic affirmations, you were about to say a technique that you do use that works effectively for you. Yeah. You know, we should probably do an episode in the future, man, where I just identify like 10 techniques that I use and just go through as many as possible. And Let, you can let's play. Do that. Give, give, us, give us one today, but let's do that. Yeah. So, okay. T- today I'll, I'll give you something that's kind of influenced by some studies in neuro linguistic programming that I did. And I'm going to come back later to talk about what science has to say about NLP and how we should frame that discussion in order to be able to get the benefits out of it in spite of many things that um, are still unsettled scientifically. But neuro-linguistic programming is um, an approach to understanding the relationship between your thoughts and your words, and it's often described as the understanding and modification of subjective experience. It's founded by John Grinder and Richard Bandler, and a lot of it is influenced by what's called uh, uh, Ericksonian hypnotherapy, the therapist uh, Milton Erickson, and also Virginia Satir, and, and a lot of her therapeutic work and the success that she had with many of her clients. Much of NLP comes from this. Um, a, a modern day popularizer of NLP would be Tony Robbins in his books, Awakening the Giant Within and Unlimited Power. He talks a lot about this as well, and he refers to it as neuroassociative conditioning because there are some elements that he's tweaked and he's changed. But the basic idea is this. When you consider the way we take in the world, we take in the world through one or more of our five senses. Everything that you experience, you experience it through your sense of sight, you experience it through your sense of touch, your sense of taste, your sense of smell, and so on. And in NLP, these are referred to as your sensory modalities, right? So everything you tell me about what you ate for breakfast this morning or what you did when you hung out with your family yesterday, you would convey it in the language of these sensory modalities. You would tell me sounds that you heard and you would describe them in detail. You would tell me things that you saw and you would describe them in interesting ways and so forth. Now, NLP says whenever we have mental experiences, these mental experiences mirror these sensory modalities. So we think in terms of images. We think in terms of sounds. We think in terms of smells. So when you have an experience of anxiety about the future, for instance, let's say you have a job interview coming up and you're afraid. Um, at first, you might experience this fear and anxiety as, as just kind of like a vague underlying sense of discomfort. But if you step back for a minute and you just go within and pay attention to the events transpiring in your own consciousness, you'll find that there are things going on in your imagination that correspond with this sense of anxiety. Perhaps for you, it's visual and you imagine yourself walking into an office and maybe you imagine an intimidating figure sitting across the desk saying, Isaac Morehouse, why would I waste my time hiring you? Not possible. No one. (laughs) I I love that you had to put that on the record. You knew it was hypothetical, but just in case there was that one brother listening who wasn't sure. That was like a Dwight Schrute moment. (laughs) Not possible. I would kill a bear if it attacked me. (laughs) That's so awesome, man. So, So these fears and anxieties, as well as even positive states like anticipation about the future, they're based on 
the way we're internally representing an experience uh, that has either happened in the past or that will happen in the future or that we are afraid will happen in the future. Now, NLP says there are things we can do to tinker with these experiences once we identify basic features of them. And by tinkering with those experiences, we can change our mental and emotional relationship to them. In other words, we can change our subjective experiences and the way they affect the way we think, feel, speak, and ultimately the way we act in the world. So um, to get a little deeper into the modalities, we have these sensory modalities and each of these sensory modalities can be broken up into sub-modalities. So let's take the modality of sound. If you play with um, auditing software, for instance, you'll realize that there are many things you can do to manipulate sound. In fact, one of the things that inspired me to download Audacity and learn how to use it was there was a time when I was studying a lot of NLP and I wanted to broaden my vocabulary for all the different ways you can manipulate sound for the purpose of doing this in my own subjective experiences. So when you, when you use a, a program like Audacity and, and you put an audio file in there, you find that you can do things like you can change the tempo and slow it down, you can speed it up, you can add an echo effect, you can play it in reverse, you can change the pitch and make the person sound like Barry White, or you can make the person sound like Mariah Carey when she's hitting those really high squeaky notes. You can also put a reverb effect in. You've got me feeling <laughs> emotion. <laughs> you, can't, you can't say Mariah Carey without me singing. I'm sorry. <laughs> Dude, I love it. You shouldn't have told me that. <laughs> or, or you take uploading a photo into PicMonkey or Photoshop, the ways you can manipulate images, right? You can take an image and you can drain it of color. You can create overlays, you can shrink the image, you can expand it. Now, in the same way that we can do this in the physical world, with physical images and sounds and so forth, we can do this in our internal world. And Did it, you drain a picture of color? That sounds racist to me. <laughs> Bringing it down to the black See, For those of you who are listening, this is not an act. I truly have no self-control. And this is every conversation TK and I have. I'm genuinely listening and enthralled with what he's saying, but I can't help but make stupid jokes. I cannot help myself. <laughs> All right, man. Okay. So let me get back. Now that I've given you my courtesy laugh to sound like a guy. <laughs> oh, Isaac, I'm like, okay. 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 All right. All right. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So NLP says, take something like a fear that you have about the way future events will unfold. You can also take a, a traumatic memory or something like that as well and pay attention to what's going on inside without even trying to manipulate it to see how you are representing this. And that will be your representation system. So for some people, they represent uh, future events that worry them primarily in terms of sound, primarily in terms of images or some other sense or maybe a mixture of them. So for me, Maybe I uh, am I'm really nervous about tomorrow because I, I've got a, um, a, a talk coming up and, and, and I'm just afraid that it may not go right. So when I, when I sit down for 10 minutes and I just kind of go within and pay attention, I may find that I'm imagining myself in front of the crowd and I'm up there stuttering. I'm at a loss for words. The people in the crowd are not really paying attention to me. They're falling asleep and it's going really well. And then I hear people after the event say, oh my gosh, that TK guy's a, a horrible speaker. So, so that lets me know how my representational system illustrates fear for me. 
Okay, and if I can go in there and tinker with that and change those submodalities, I might be able to alter the way I'm processing and preparing so, for this. So how, how would you do that in, in this case? How would you alter that visual um, representation of your, of your fear? Okay, so I, I take an experimental playful approach and, and I, I construct or I go within and I construct or I find the image. And let's say in my anxiety-ridden image, I'm standing in front of the crowd, I would ask myself, okay, am I experiencing this image as an observer? Am I watching it like a movie? Or am I experiencing it from the first-person point of view? However I answer that question, I might choose the opposite. So if I'm experiencing it from the first-person point of view, I'm up there speaking and I'm looking at the crowd, I might take myself out of it and observe the scene like I'm watching a movie to create a little detachment. Then I'll pay attention to the color scheme of the scene. Is it is it in color or is it black and white? And if it's in color, is it bright? Is there one color that's more dominant? Is it pretty balanced? And once I do that, I might tinker with that. So maybe if it's in color, I might drain the image of color and turn it into black and white. Okay. The second, th the, the third thing I might do is I I'll take a look at my audience. What are their facial expressions? What are they saying to me? And I'll listen to them say things like, oh, that TK Coleman, what a waste of time. He's a horrible speaker. And I'll listen to the quality of their voices and I'll manipulate that. And I'll play that back to myself as them saying it in really slow, Barry White voice, like, listen to TK Coleman. Or I'll play it in the squeaky voice so that, so that it sounds funny. Then I may add music to the scene. Maybe I'll add music like circus music or something along those lines. And by the time I get through, that's, that's what I hear every time I watch the Lions play. I hear the Benny Hill theme, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, one speaking tip I'm sure you've heard people give before. I don't think it necessarily works because it's really oversimplified, but it's actually a highly simplified version of this NLP technique. When people say, if you're speaking and you're nervous, imagine the crowd is naked, right? What, what you're doing is you're taking an image that you already have and you're manipulating that image by associating an element that makes you afraid with something that makes you feel confident or superior. I, I always heard in your underwear. I guess I was getting the PG version. Yeah, you were getting you were homeschooled. So <laughs> <laughs> imagine the crowd without a head covering. Oh, <laughs> yeah. See, I grew up in the church, man. We kept it real. <laughs> this is so terrible. The episode just went wrong. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, that's essentially what you're doing, right? Because when you imagine that, you're more likely to feel confident. So one of the things you do when you're doing all of these self-awareness exercises is you're not just playing around with the images that bring you down, but you're also paying attention to the images that make you feel good. And you're learning how to transfer those qualities to the images that kind of bring you down and disempower you. And, and the idea here is it's not just to make you feel good. It's not just to create uh, a positive emotional experience, which isn't a bad thing because that is part of your quality of life anyway, but it's also going to change how you react and respond to it. You're far more likely to get up there and be confident because the way you're visualizing or representing the experience to yourself is, is conducive with constructive and creative action. So we could, we could delve into more detail. That's kind of a brief summary. I, I can recommend some resources if people want to look deeper into it, but maybe when we or if we do a future episode where we where we break some more things down, you know, I can get more into it. But if you want to ask some questions about it, we can do that too. But yeah, that's, that's one technique I use. That sounds much harder than I was hoping. It does. <laughs> it, it does. Tell me why. Tell me why. No, no, I'm 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 half kidding. But it's I mean, because I think like with all of the, you know, if you take the simplified version of self help or whatever, and 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 
you know, point out, oh, so stupid, you know, tell yourself good things or affirmations or whatever. The reason that people both dislike it and like it is because it gets portrayed as simpler than it is. So it's easy to dismiss if it's just like, yeah, stand in the mirror and say you're awesome. And it's also easy for people to latch onto it, people who are desperate. It's like, oh, a get rich quick scheme. Oh, all I have to do is say nice things to myself. That's really easy. Then I'll be happy and fulfilled. And it always turns out it's more work than that. So just the actually delving into your inner space, figuring out in what modality you're representing this particular fear or anxiety in detail, getting comfortable exploring that, and then delving in again and one by one experimentally testing, switching up and making changes to these modalities. That's, I mean, just, just finding the quiet space to do that is, is a challenge. That's definitely a lot of work, but it's really fascinating to me. And one thing you said in particular, cause I've never really done this in any concerted way, but I, but I, I have noticed a few things. Um, as I have grown in confidence over the years and, and, probably I've had this default for a while, but especially now when I, (laughs) this is terrible. It's terrible, but it's wonderful. When I imagine myself giving a talk, I always imagine it being like this amazing rousing success. I always like just as a default, not as a conscious thing, not like I'm consciously choosing to try to, okay, think about it as a positive way. Like I, when I have an upcoming talk, I'm always like, oh, I can't wait. It's going to be awesome. Even if I haven't written the content yet. And I imagine myself on stage having like a standing ovation because I just, <laughs> I just think that's what's going to happen. However, there are times when I find I'm really not looking forward to a particular talk. And almost always, it usually comes down to because I said yes to an event that I should have said no to. And it's just not high value enough. And I've been traveling a lot or whatever. And now I got to write a talk and it's not a topic that I'm super keen on. But in those times, when I imagine it, I usually don't imagine getting a negative reaction from the crowd. Because if it's a talk I don't want to give, I sort of don't care that much because I'm sort of mm-hmm. like, oh, why did I agree to this? I almost always, and I didn't realize this until you said it about the lighting and the colors. In my mind, it's always a low drop ceiling holiday in hotel lobby type room that's dark with no windows <laughs> and no like stage lighting. And that's usually if it's a talk I'm not looking forward to, that's kind of how I imagine the setting. It's very dim, very dull, badly lit, mm. small room. And when it's a talk I'm excited about, I always imagine either a really bright and open room or else like a spotlight you know, with like dramatic lighting or something. Mm. Um, that is a really interesting, that's a very interesting observation I had never made before. I'm going to have to play around with that. Well, you know, if, if you look at the way some people successfully cope with creative challenges, you'll find that a lot of this is going on unconsciously and just at a more simplified level than what I explained. So even take something like the way we deal with um, critics or mean people. So someone Someone uh, goes on your blog and they write, Isaac Morehouse, your blog is stupid. You're a waste of time. Okay. You read something like that. Now, naturally, that's going to hurt the average person's feelings. It's going to feel bad and create this sort of maybe tension in the chest area or something like that. Now, when people cope with that, they often do something along the following lines. Oh, yeah, Isaac Morehouse, your blog is stupid. Ah, Who's this guy? Now, what just happened? And I've heard you do this a lot. Um. You, you, you just took a voice that you associate with silliness or stupidity and you represented that criticism or those hurtful words in a voice that you associate with silliness or stupidity. And once you do that, it becomes easier for you to either dismiss or laugh at the criticism itself. And now you've overcome it. So rather than debate the actual content, 
you've altered the frame in which the content has been delivered. And by altering the frame, even though the content is the same, you've sort of dissolved the effect that it has on you. People do this all the time and using funny or silly voices or rather voices that they associate with stupidity or, or silliness is, one, is, is something that people often do. And you see comedians do this all the time. Just listen when they make fun of people. They always use some kind of body language or some kind of um, vocal styling that we all have an easy time laughing at. And they convey something that usually scares us and they make us laugh at it. They're, they're essentially using this kind of technique. Well, it's amazing how the whole understanding of a situation and the entire orientation can be altered just by changing the the sound, the voice. I, I know this is something that we run into with my son, my oldest all the time, is if let's say we think he's been really rude or snappy, like if I come in and I say something to him and he screams or yells about it. Now, I my natural reaction is to say, dude, that's so rude. And then he'll be like, what do you mean? And I'll be like, don't say, leave me alone. And, and, I'll, and I'll mimic him. And I'm truly not trying to exaggerate most of the time. I'm truly trying to, I'm representing what it sounded like to me, but there is nothing that offends him more deeply than when we impersonate him. Because he immediately loses track of what we were originally debating or fighting about or me saying, hey, you're being rude to me. And him saying, no, I'm not. What do you mean? And I say, because you said it like this. And the minute I change my voice to what I think he sounded like, he's completely hung up on the fact that that's not what he sounded like. And I'm always like, well, yeah, I can't perfectly impersonate you. But he's he's super offended, and I think for good reason, mm -hmm. by me impersonating him. I mean, it's like if I'm in a discussion with my wife and I'm saying, that's so rude. And she said, what's rude? I'm saying, for you to just say, no, I don't care or whatever. If I change my voice to impersonate her mm -hmm. immediately, everything changes in that conversation because she's understanding that I have, and my son thinks this, that like, and, and he's probably got the truth to it, that in my mind, I have already converted him into a caricature that is unlikable by mere fact of the way that this is how I'm portraying his voice, or this is how I'm hearing his voice. And that really bothers him that that's the way you know, that I say he sounds to me more than the content of the discussion itself. And, and, and this is why movies and television shows often have such a powerful impact on our lifestyle and on our priorities, because you can take being intelligent and being creative. And if you represent that as Carlton Banks from The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, nobody wants to be intelligent or creative. Right. But if you take those same qualities and you represent that, represent that as it looks and sounds like Will Smith. Well, you know, now we want to be intelligent. Now we want to be creative. And, so, and this happens. Well, so you're saying that I probably shouldn't end this podcast with like. And so this was a summary on uh, how you can better program your mind. <laughs> you just you just dismissed it now. No one's gonna hear it. It's, o it's over. It's done. <laughs> the, you know what best captures it is that Key and Peel skit. Yeah. The substitute teacher. Yes. <laughs> I once I once opened up a talk retelling that it was to a bunch of high school students in Atlanta, <laughs> and I thought it was the funniest thing ever. And it just completely bombed. It did not go over well. Because uh, <laughs> I think I did something. I, I said something like serious. And then I wrote on the chalkboard and it made a, a funny sound. And then I said, oh, it reminds me of that Key and Peel sketch where the teacher comes in. And he's so serious and everyone's so intimidated. And then he bends down to pick up the chalk and he lets out this huge fart. 
And immediately he just leaves the classroom because he knows he's already lost them and there's no way he can get it back. And I'm like telling it and laughing and all the students just stared at me like, what is this guy talking about? <laughs> Dude, so, I, I freaking love it, man. Well, hey, let, let me let me say uh, a couple of more quick things about NLP. Um, w- one thing I'll say is, uh, you know, with your story about your son. Hey, don't don't I, sound like you're don't sound like you're you're rushed, like you're under the gun, dude. All right, man. Come at, come right. at it strong. I'm not in a hurry today. <laughs> okay, now that I uh, have your permission, <laughs> why don't come you at it why don't you why don't you change the modality of that statement, <laughs> dude? By the way, whenever whenever my wife and I have a disagreement, I use the uh, Wallace Shawn voice from my dinner with Andre, <laughs> and, and it gets me out of trouble like ninety percent of the time. Inconceivable. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, well, uh, even though I disagree with you, I can't quite understand uh, why you don't allow me to have my way. And, and usually the, the conflict is immediately resolved. But you know, th- there was a moment where she was legit mad at me. It was one of those moments where um, I answered a question and I, I think I, I just did it so quickly and half distracted that I just came off kind of rude. And she was upset at me. And I remember there's this YouTube video of these guys doing this funny dance that she really likes. And all I did was I repeated the same thing I said to her in the same tone that made her upset, and I did the dance at the same time, and she just started cracking up, and it was over. Now, I, I can't get a formula out of that, right? Because uh, it, it, you can't repeat the same thing too many times, but it worked. And why did it work? Because I took something that she associated with hilarious, so, hilariousness, something that she couldn't take seriously, and I juxtaposed it with something that was very disturbing to her, and we were able to dissolve and resolve the problem. We do this a lot unconsciously. NLP is just a way of- I mean, this is, this is what me- memes and gifs and quotes from movies are. It's, it's in a situation, you import something that already has a, a package of feelings associated with it. Oh, and man. Yeah. you import it into a situation. And when it works best, it's the eureka moment that, that Kessler talks about in the act of creation. It's the unexpected intersection of two matrices of thought. We're talking about something very serious and businesslike in our Slack channel. And somebody says something <laughs> in line with that. And it reminds somebody else of a completely unrelated scene from Dumb and Dumber. And they pop in the meme. And that moment of laughter is because... It's the unexpected juxtaposition. You're, you've reframed the conversation in light of a completely unrelated set of emotions that you would not otherwise associate with that conversation. Oh, just last week on Slack, you you corrected the team on a big mistake we made and you put, guys, we got to take this seriously. This is not a game. And then I responded, not the game that I would die for, not the game that I love. And then Derek responded with the picture of Allen Iverson. And then Cameron <laughs> came back, what we talking about? And then it was just over. Like, we got the point, but it just turned a situation that could have been like, oh, shoot, we all made a mistake. We got corrected. Let's just move forward, you know, in, with an awkward ending to that was good time. That was the moment when, yet again, my dreams of being a dictator were destroyed. <laughs> you guys are all too free as human beings to be ruled. <laughs> Man, but you know, w- one thing I want people to know is that although these types of things might sound like a lot of work and anything feels like a lot of work in the earliest stages of the game because you're there's a learning curve you go through, but this can get really fun. Yeah, I'm a nerd, but it really is true, man, that once you kind of develop a vocabulary for all the different things you can do to explore your inner landscape, you can sit down on the couch for 15 minutes and you can go inside of your own mind. And just by paying attention and tinkering with things, not because of a dogma, 
not because of, re of a religious belief that says I'm doing this because it's right or I'm guaranteeing some kind of result to myself, but just seeing what happens, seeing what happens and being detached from outcome, it can be like playing a video game. You don't, you don't need a remote control. You don't need a television screen. You can go right to the screen of your unconscious mind and do so many cool, interesting things. Last thing about this is the science on this is not settled. And this kind of goes back to your placebo thing. If you go on a site like Rational Wiki and you type in NLP, and I've read a ton of articles against it as well, there's no scientific evidence to support that this works. But for me, this is why the psychonautic approach is so valuable. It's, it's kind of like the idea of T never take anything personally or take everything personally. I, I simply adopt the way of looking at it that works in the moment without being attached to this is reality. In a similar way, I treat NLP techniques as a game, as an exercise, as an experiment. I, I move things around in my mental furniture to see what kinds of changes they produce. And I, can, and I, I, I conduct these experiments in, my, in the laboratory of my own mind in a scientific matter. Some things simply don't work. There are times where I'm going through an issue and I may represent it as an image and drain the image of color or add some jazz music or something like that. There are things I do quite often that simply don't work, but you keep tinkering, you keep playing around, and every time you do it, you win because you gain valuable ground in the realm of self-discovery. I find that if you just play Ice Cubes, today was a good day in the background <laughs> of all of your uh, imaginings, <laughs> it changes everything. Uh, no, but seriously, when you're talking about the difficulty of the technique or how to, how to do it, long showers, that's the key. You're like, what? What in the world? In fact, I just reminded myself, quick side note, then I'll tell you what I mean by long shower. I just reminded myself of this moment. I love it when people do this and I'm trying to make myself do it more just for the awkwardness that it produces. But I was interviewing somebody for an, uh, an internship years ago and he said, well, I really love to solve problems and come up with new solutions. And, and I go, oh, okay. Um, and this guy was very intense. He, he turned out to be a phenomenal intern and later employee, but like very intense and no like social niceties or transitions between sentences or whatever. And I said, uh, I said, well, give me an example of, you know, solving a problem, whatever. And he goes, my hair is very straight. And he just stared at me and, I, and I said, okay, I thought maybe he was going to murder me or something. I didn't know what was happening. And then he said, to get it to sit the way that I prefer, no standard hair gels work. And I'm like, okay, pause again. <laughs> I created my own hair substance from flax seeds and boiling blah, 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 blah. That was a problem that I enjoyed solving. And anyway, I mean, it was, but just when he said, like, I said, well, give me an example of you solving problems and blah, blah, blah. My hair is very straight. Just this statement. It was the most amazing, awkward moment I've ever experienced. <laughs> so that, that's what I reminded myself of when I just said long showers. Um, no, but really, this is, you know, to use cheesy buzzwords of like life hacks and whatever. I have found this to be so valuable for me because when you're busy and full of creative ideas and trying to do a lot of stuff, Setting aside time to just think. No podcasts, no reading, no writing, not even, oh, I was walking for five minutes by myself and I had a thought. I got to vox it to TK or leave myself a note or write it down before I forget, which is often what happens to me. And it's like five minutes of a clear head and all of a sudden I get all these ideas. But I want to go even farther sometimes. I take incredibly long showers for this very reason because it's the one place where I don't even need to rely on any self-control. Because I can't have my phone in there. It will get ruined. I can't have a pen and paper in there. I can't have a voice recorder in there. I can't have anything but my mind. 
And I don't have to rely on my discipline to say, I'm going to go on a walk and I'm not going to make any phone calls or listen to any podcasts or whatever. I'm forced to. And so I take really, really long showers and I find within five minutes, I get all these ideas and I want to write them down and I'm, I want to get out of the shower now so I can write up a blog post or so I can, you know, do talk on Slack to you guys. But I force myself to just stay. It's the one place where I don't act immediately on ideas. And I lose a lot of them because of that, but I'm okay with that. I let them bounce around in there. And so after a while, my mind calms down and then I can start to do these sort of thought experiments with myself. And I haven't, I haven't done this sort of NLP stuff you're talking about, but similar things where I'll kind of work through situations and I'll project well out into the future. What would it look like if, you know, Praxis was like this in five years, how would that need to work? And I'll slowly methodically, and it's, it's like the one place where I am forced to not have access to all of the things that I would otherwise use to either consume or produce ideas. And instead I only get to go inward and use my brain. And I found that to be really, really effective for those of you who are like me and you, you kind of have some ADD. There, there's a book that I read on Jewish meditation many years ago, um, where the author referred to this very practice as noble boredom. It, it's the art of doing nothing so that you can be able to do everything that you need to do. Um, in, in The Secret Power Within, Chuck Norris referred to this as something that him and Are Bruce... Are you here quoting a book by Chuck Norris? Yeah, man. <laughs> Heck Dude, yeah. this show just got over the top. <laughs> Chuck is my man. Uh, when him and Bruce Lee would practice, he would call it the art of slowing down to go faster. Um, or or, or, or other, other quotes that I really love on the same topic, Terrence McKenna in giving advice to people about psychonautic, psychedelic experiences, he would say, never be paralyzed by astonishment. Never get so caught up in the attractiveness of the colors and the esoteric sights and things of that sort that you forget that the most valuable aspect of any experience is to go within and get to know the depths of your own self, not just about exotic imagery. In the uh, Buddhist philosophy, there's a saying that says, if you meet the Buddha on the road to, uh, to, to enlightenment, to kill him. And that, that sounds drastic and crazy at first, but the idea is to never allow your reverence for some amazing or ecstatic experience to get in the way of the most important thing, which is enlightenment, which is self-knowledge. One last one, the Eastern Orthodox monastics, they would also talk about if you have a vision of the blessed Theotokos, the Virgin Mary, to ignore her, to go beyond the vision of Mary, to go beyond an exotic experience and seek that knowledge, which is the most important kind of knowledge, which is intimate connection with the deep self, with the essence of who you are. And, and I, I think this goes along very neatly with this whole thing of when you're taking a walk, when you're taking time to meditate, not the podcast, not writing something. When you get an insight, don't just kill the moment by writing it down or voxing someone or creating a blog. Go even deeper because there's something more valuable than that cool idea. And that's knowledge of self. Yeah. I found early on when I was afraid of blogging and sharing my ideas, the best thing I could do was immediately write a blog post when the idea came. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now that the fear of getting my ideas out there, because that helped me get to know myself better. That was a way to go deeper with the idea, to write about it, because otherwise it would just come and I'd be like, yeah, it's interesting, maybe later when I'm a better writer. But if I actually wrote about it, overcoming that fear helped me go deeper. Now that I no longer fear that, in fact, now that I'm kind of addicted to immediately writing about every thought that I have, mm -hmm. the opposite has become true. Hold up, go deeper, wait. Uh, by the way, I the agree. best part about that spiel you just had was that you have revealed to me that the ending to your story and the movie about your life has already been written. There's going to be, you're going to be at an event somewhere. You'll be an old man and someone will come up to you and they'll say, TK, 
you have been my guide, my guru. You, I have been your biggest follower. Thank you. And then they'll stab you. And then you'll, you'll be fall down dying and you'll say, congratulations, my son. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, you met the Buddha on the road and you killed him. <laughs> and you'll, bo- you'll die happy and he'll move on to the next stage. The, the alternative ending will be that person will come up to me and says, say, man, you totally changed my life. And I'll say, do you really believe that? And they'll say, yeah. I'll say, no, you don't. They'll say, yeah, I do. And I'll say, kill me. <laughs> <laughs> and it'll just be fade to black. You won't know what happened. You won't know what happened. Dude, that's amazing. No, in all seriousness, though, there's an element in there that I love. Not just from the, from the perspective of the follower, which is how we usually hear that story. The pilgrim on the road who sees the Buddha. You know, we're thinking about it from their perspective. But from, from the perspective of someone who is who has people that follow them or their ideas. The idea that you actually want the people that look up to you to kill you in a sense. You want them to kill their heroes. If you're, if someone is one of your students, your acolytes, you want them to outgrow you. And, and I, 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 mm. I've always felt so strongly about that. It's so hard to not give in to a cult of personality that could develop or when people look up to you to not want them to and then need them to and then actually want them to be held back from their own deeper journey because then they wouldn't need you anymore. Like there's all these things that happen. If you have any kind of people that say, Oh, I love your work or your ideas. I was reminded of this. I was reading a quote. Um, Rudolf Steiner had this quote about Nietzsche. He had just discovered Nietzsche's books. And even though they were contemporaries and he read one of them and he said something to the effect of, I'm paraphrasing. He said, yeah, I found it really interesting. He said, the thing that I liked the most is that there was nothing in Nietzsche that compelled you to become a follower of Nietzsche. Or what, what, what was the phrase that he used? Oh, I wish I could remember the exact quote. I think I shared it with you guys. I'll, I'll try to find it for the show notes. But it was, it was something to the effect, no, no, it was the word dependent. He said, there's nothing about the ideas of Nietzsche that leans towards making someone dependent on Nietzsche. And I thought that is one of the greatest things I, I could think of someone saying about me is that, you know, nothing in the ideas that I spread made people want to become dependent on me. And, and I like to, to, to see yourself in that perspective and to say, I want people, whether it's my children that I'm raising and they look up to me for a time or employees or people, I'm young people I'm mentoring. I want them to kill me if they encounter me on the road, metaphorically. I want them to never be dependent on me. I would like to fade to the background. I would like my influence to be one that isn't even attached to my name for all I care. Um, That's always been really compelling to me. You know, you and I gave a talk at SFL, and this was maybe two, three years ago, international conference in DC. Someone came up to us after that talk and said, that was the best talk I've ever heard in my life. And later on, you and I were in the hotel room, and this is a scene that's gotta go in our movie. And I remember saying to you, we're in trouble, man. We're in trouble. If we let those words get into our heads, we're done. We're dead in the water. This is where most people stop. They they gloat in that kind of reverie and praise, and they treat that as the end. We got to go beyond that, and we got to pursue that higher goal, which is to transform that person and people like them into versions of themselves that are too good to be impressed by talks like that. You know, And it, it's one of those things that it's very difficult for the Buddha in the story or the educator in the story or the guru in the story. And this is part of the trouble with the school mindset. Whenever you adopt 
a teacher-oriented approach to learning, where it begins with the teacher's vision for the learner rather than the learner's vision for himself, the teacher begins to feel threatened by a learner that becomes independent from them, by learners yeah. that become autonomous. But yeah, you, you, be, you become dependent on that teacher. What's the vision this year? What do I have to do to get to, to, to succeed? Absolutely. Absolutely, man. Hey, this was a long episode, but it was well worth it. And we didn't even get to, there were, there were other things I wanted to get into that we didn't even get to. So this is good. We've got a lot to, a lot of ground to cover uh, next week. I want to make one quick housekeeping announcement. So in starting in not maybe next week, but the week after these Friday episodes are going to continue to be recorded every Friday, but now they're going to be released on Monday. I'm simplifying my life dramatically and reducing a number of things. Praxis is growing like crazy. We just hired several employees and I'm really focusing in on a lot more uh, managerial type stuff within Praxis. And so I'm just removing a lot of things. And one of them is my Monday podcast interviews with other guests. I have one on, uh, I have two more that will be released that I already recorded. And after that, I'm going to discontinue them. And we're going to go to just me and TK. Occasionally we might have a guest um, here and there, but we're just going to do these once a week. And I've got my producer, Ryan Ferguson, uh, so that I won't have to produce them and do the show notes like I do every Friday immediately when we're done. I'm going to ship them to him. He's going to get them all ready to go and they will be released on Monday. So Fridays with TK is no more. From here on out, it's going to be me and TK just doing our episodes and they're going to be released every Monday. Isaac, are we going to have a, a catchy way of articulating that? Because Fridays with TK kind of has a ring to it. We can't just go Mondays with TK. Uh, TBD. I mean, I was just going to start naming the episodes based on the topics, but I guess that wouldn't really be fair to you since the, the podcast in the podcast feed is called the Isaac Morehouse podcast. And if your name like doesn't, <laughs> doesn't appear, uh, how, how, we, how, how about giving, your... I mean, we could still call it Fridays with TK since we're recording it on Fridays. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I was thinking given for how much you love Mark Jackson, the NBA commentator, <laughs> you could call it something like mama. There goes that man Mondays. Mama, there goes that Monday. <laughs> Mama, there goes that Monday. <laughs> Dude, this is not a good idea to get you involved on the naming of things. <laughs> hey, man. Great talking to you. We'll uh, have a great weekend and we'll talk next week. You can't end without a resource. Recommend something for the... Oh, you're right. All right. Well, I'm, since I already mentioned it in the show, um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Just, just hilarious. Amazing. Uh, if I've already mentioned it before, it doesn't matter. If you've already read it before, read it again. It makes you happy. I'll give you two books on NLP. One of them is called Winning the Inner Game by Michael Hall. And the other is called Essentials of NLP with 150 Techniques. Can't pronounce the author's name, but you'll know it You'll know it when you see it. With 150 Techniques. All right, great. That sounds like one of those doctors hate this man type of titles. <laughs> Clickbait. Clickbook bait. I don't know what you call it. Hey, man, have a great weekend. Cubs win. Cubs win. All right. Cubs win, baby. Peace. Later.